Now more than ever, the industry that fuels the world needs the right people to modernize and unify a global energy platform. The transformation is both digital and cultural. Join us as we explore strategies for success in the hyper-competitive war for talent here on the Energy Workforce of Tomorrow podcast, hosted by the IBM North American Oil and Gas Team and KIT. A little about our sponsors, Ericsson. As we're all aware, the oil and gas industry is digitizing rapidly. In addition to helping the industry reap the benefits of cost reductions, capture efficiencies for top-line revenue, achieve safety and environmental goals, digitization is enabling better and stronger connectivity. Ericsson provides best-in-class connectivity solutions for the oil and gas industry with its 4G and 5G private networks. Check out their site at www.ericsson.com forward slash oil and gas. I will put this in the notes of each one of the episodes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another episode of Energy Workforce for Tomorrow, sponsored by Ericsson. Just a very quick message from Ericsson as our sponsor. As we're all aware, the oil and gas industry is digitizing rapidly. In addition to helping the industry reap the benefits of cost reductions, capture efficiencies for top-line revenue, achieve safety and environmental goals, digitization is enabling better and stronger connectivity. Ericsson, our sponsor, provides best-in-class connectivity solutions for the oil and gas industry with its 4G and 5G private networks. Check out the site on www.ericsson.com forward slash oil and gas. I will put that in the notes. I'm here today with my co-host, Jerry Lewis. Hey, Jerry, how are you today? Hey, Jason, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. Not bad at all. Getting close to Christmas, watching the World Cup, getting excited. Yeah, and apparently there's some reason for a little nervousness because i think we're getting audited today aren't we well you know that big sort of entry i did with ericsson i'd like to mm. introduce you jerry to Virin parik hey Virin from ericsson hello hey jason hey jerry how y'all doing welcome to the po- oh, welcome to your podcast as the host Virin. <laughs> yeah. wow jerry how do you feel i should have put a suit and tie on today if i knew Virin yeah. was coming in yeah we got to be on our best behavior that's for sure None hey Virin, uh, would you like to introduce yourself Absolutely. So my name is Viren Parikh. I am the business development manager at Ericsson, and I look after oil and gas, as well as the other energy verticals, such as alternative energies. And specifically, I do this for the North American segment, so the U.S. and Canadian markets for Ericsson. Great to be here. Great to I'm, see you. Great to hear you. Yeah, oh, Jerry. See. When I think of Ericsson, you know, my first thought is, and of course, I know a lot about you now. We've done some research. My first thought would have been, and probably some of our listeners are thinking, Sony Ericsson, some commercial cell phone use and things like that. Maybe if they're really kind of nerdy on telco, they think about optical switches and things like that. But tell us who Ericsson is today and why is it relevant for oil and gas? Absolutely. Yeah. So you're correct. I mean, of course, most people, you ask the average person walking down the street, you know, who is Ericsson? They'll associate us with the old Sony Ericsson phones from back in the day. But we're actually about a hundred, you know, we're, I think we're over 140 years old. Started in Stockholm, Sweden. Started making the guy who, uh, LM Ericsson, who started the company, he started repairing phones up in a kitchen shop in Sweden. So over the history, we've been, of course, involved in telecom, made, of course, telephone communications possible. And then eventually migrated that over to internet and played a role in providing the internet infrastructure that we all are a part of today. 
And eventually we got into the mobile infrastructure. So started with 1G, 2G, 3G, 4G, and of course today 5G networks, mobile networks. So, you know, anywhere around the globe you go, you make a phone call. There's probably, you know, depending on what country you're in, there's probably a chance that anywhere from 30 to 60% chance that you're actually doing it or that call is going over Ericsson equipment at some point or another in that life of that call. So if I get cut off next time for an I can blame you, am I phoning you next time? <laughs> Good, yeah, about 30 to 60%. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But so today, one of the things that's happening with 5G, of course, is that, of course, we all are expecting, you know, as consumers, we're expecting higher speeds and being able to download a movie in seconds and all that great stuff. But there's a whole other side to 5G, right? And yeah, that is where industry comes in, right? And industry 4.0, right? And that's where folks like myself play a role where we're going out to these industries like the oil and gas industry. And we have other guys like myself that deal with like manufacturing and all the other verticals. But we're going out there and we're trying to understand, you know, not just requirements, but we're trying to understand how can private networks play a role in oil and gas, right? Or how can we make it better for oil and gas operations and for the connectivity, right? To be able to kind of unlock that bottleneck, basically. Just a point on that one, because you and I and Jerry were talking a couple of weeks ago, and it surprised me. When IBM puts their glasses on, Jerry and I look at digital, and there's telco. We always used to believe, I think, yeah, it was about a month ago, the, t- the telcos were already there. So we were looking at anything from mobiles, mobile technology, drones, etc. But the conversation with you is, this is a very late conversation that the clients have or sites have about laying down the platform, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And it does vary, right? Some companies like some of the super majors are definitely have teams that are looking at this and have been looking at it for a number of years, Mm -hmm. right? So we get that part of it. We also get some of the parts where just the other day we were having lunch with, I believe it was a midstream and we were going over some of the basics of LTE with them, right? So it varies, you know, it varies from one end to the other. And so, you know, that education process, of course, is still there. But, you know, to answer your question, Jason, I think there's a portion of the industry that is late or that is a little, still a little apprehensive about saying, okay, you know, going into cellular technologies, going beyond the Wi-Fi or going beyond the proprietary, like the Tetras and the PMRs, the two-way radios and all those types of technologies that there's still a little apprehension to that, right? And they're like, no, I need to understand LTE better. I need to understand private cellular better. And then there's others the super majors who have invested on pilots and deployments and networks to see what they could do with it. So for for the simple way, including me as well, before we spoke, there's always a question on the non-telcos, 5G or Wi-Fi, if I understand. What in a very simple way can you sort of assess whether you need one or t'other? Or can both of them do the same work on a site? Yeah. And before you answer it, Viren, I'd also just say maybe even take a step back from there. 4G, LTE, and 5G, what are the differences between <laughs> what those? Are the Absolutely. Yeah. Great and then, point. And Great then how does it compare to Wi-Fi and kind of what are those choices? Because I think let's get educated here. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So let me start off by saying, of course, you know, we focus on just the cellular type technology. So that's the 3G, the 4G, the 5G. And the names 3G, 4G, 5G are just basically generational names, right? So there's individual little technologies within them. LTE is a technology of 4G, right? So when you say 4G and LTE, they're one and the same today. Now, you know, early on with 4G, it was a little different, but we won't get into that. But 4G and LTE are one and the same, right? And so most of our cell phones today, of course, automatically have 4G on them. 5G is, of course, an enhancement or it is a completely different standard from a telco standpoint. But 
from our experience, from what the consumers can feel, it's an enhancement to our services. So that means that that movie you're trying to download, it downloads a little bit quicker. If maybe you're trying to upload a, a video stream, it uploads a little bit quicker. What's the multiple though? Can you make that real for us? Like could, between yeah, three and four, yeah. what is it? And then between four and five, is it like logarithmic? Is it exponential? Is it linear? Yeah. So 5G, there's a couple of aspects of 5G that are supposed to be put in that go beyond 4G. And those aspects are definitely the speed, which is what we feel the most, right? That's the speed. So typical LTE speeds, you know, you can experience anywhere from 70 to maybe 150 meg. In 5G, the expectations is that you're supposed to feel it in the hundreds of megs, right? So 200, 300, 400 meg, right? In the right situations, you're supposed to be able to feel you know, even up to a gigabit of average speeds potentially, right? Eventually you'll be able to even go all the way up to a gig. If you look at it from that factor, it's almost anywhere from a five to 10 time multiple factor from throughput. From latency standpoint, you know, when you do an, uh, what we call like a ping test on standard LTE networks, you can go anywhere from, let's say 20 to about maybe 50 to 80 milliseconds of latency, right? Doing normal stuff, it doesn't make that much of a difference, right? You won't feel it. In 5G, that latency should be as low as almost two milliseconds, right? So when you think about it outside of consumers, you start thinking about industrials like robotics and you start thinking about, you know, drones and all these different advanced machines that we're going to be running on 5G, all of a sudden that two milliseconds makes a really, really big difference, right? Some of the listeners, including myself, the last time, the first time, the only time they've seen LTE has been on their cell phone. And I always thought that I was dropping 4G and going down. Is that correct? Again, just for some education for the people. Yeah. So today, most of the mobile operators around the world are running LTE. So there was a time back in the day, right, when we were going from 3G to 4G. Yeah. You know, people say, you know, there were some operators that were running what we call sort of, at the time, it was a 3G technology called UMTS. Yeah. And there was sort of this bridge called UMTS Plus, where you could almost kind of pass it off as 4G. And some mobile operators were being a little, whatever you want to say, right, in terms of, (laughs) you know, the marketing And so they were able to brand it off as 4G, right? Today, all the operators, especially in the US, they're all using LTE for 4G. So there is no more UMTS. There's no more of that 3G Ah. technology. So it doesn't exist anymore. So from today's standpoint, LTE is 4G, right? And then, of course, 5G is its own standard today. So Jerry, we're now telco experts, I think, (laughs) and all your listeners are. Yeah. And what, just a real quick on Wi-Fi, the big difference between Wi-Fi and cellular. So the big difference between Wi-Fi and cellular is that I'll kind of make it simple, right? You go to Starbucks and if there's a lot of people there and there's a lot of customers there, you may or may not even get on the network, right? But not just not getting on the network, you get that little security warning that says, you know, what you're about to transmit may be monitored or it's not secure, right? Yeah. Whereas if you think about going on your cell phone to do mobile banking transactions, maybe to look up your account on your banking app, that's all going through LTE, right? You never wonder, hey, is this safe or not? right? Got it. You never have gotten that message that, hey, you're being hacked on your phone, right? Unless it's through a different mechanism, but not over the air, what we call over the air piece. Mm -hmm. So to be clear on that, so you may not get on the network, you're sharing the same bandwidth also on a Wi-Fi network, right? So you're dividing the bandwidth by the number of people on it. Whereas in a cellular connection, are you saying it's a point to point connection? one-to-one connection, or are we still sharing bandwidth it's too? Still, no, it's absolutely still shared, right? It's still a finite resource, but the difference is, is that the scheduling is much more deterministic. So there's a very, very finite way that the scheduling system schedules the call or schedules that ability to transmit back and forth. Whereas on Wi-Fi, basically a free-for-all, right? So imagine you're all in a big room and you're all trying to talk to each other. 
it's opportunistic, right? It's like, hey, I hope I can reach the guy way down over there in the <laughs> other end of the room to just by yelling at him. But, you know, if there's five other people cross talking in that path, you know, you may not reach your destination guy, right? From that standpoint, Wi-Fi is much more opportunistic and hoping to take advantage of opportunity of that spectrum. Whereas LTE says, hey, there's five people in a room. I'm going to tell each five of you exactly when you're going to transmit, when you're not going to transmit. So Jace, maybe it would make sense to ask Fearon a little bit about, okay, well, how does this all work for oil and gas then? And why, why is it important? So you know, one question that occurs to me, Viren, would be, okay, I could do potentially Wi-Fi at a refinery site, or I could potentially do a private network. Why would I choose to do one versus the other? And in terms of bandwidth, you know, 5G, what new use cases is it making possible so that now I'm going to say, hey, you know, really 5G is starting to make a ton of sense. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a two-part question. But yeah, absolutely. You could help absolutely, make that yeah. real for us. Then maybe we could talk a little bit about the people around yeah, it yeah, and I the like skills. It. Yep. No, that's great. So let's use the refinery example, right? So we've talked to a few refineries, and that is one of the first things they say is that we try to cover this with Wi-Fi. There's so much piping, there's so much metal, there's so many structures that for us to try to cover this with Wi-Fi access points, it would just be too many. There would be so much wiring. We need something that can get the communications needs to our workers much more efficiently, right? So one of the things to kind of remember is that cellular technology typically, you know, the general rule we've used is about four to one, right? Anywhere from four to maybe six to one. So for every one radio node, you could potentially replace four to six Wi-Fi access point nodes in terms of coverage, right? So that's the coverage part of it. The other part of it, of course, is the reliability and the throughput, right? So you put like, for instance, one of the statistics I read was that there, you know, on an offshore platform, there's 80,000 potential sensors running on a offshore platform, right? Taking measurements, you know, calculating things, whatever, right? You take that same type of idea on a refinery and let's say you have 10,000 sensors, right? And you put all those on that AP, on those different sets of APs, that's going to saturate that Wi-Fi AP. Whereas LTE, because it's more schedule efficient, it can handle all those connections all at once, right? Because of the fact that it's the scheduler, right? The other part of it is the reliability, right? Because again, because of that schedule being more deterministic, there's a reliability factor where it's not going to drop that connection, right? So one of the things that we hear from refineries is we want our workers to have tablets and we want them to have tablets to be able to go and actually, you know, do the workflow, take the operations, take down notes on their tablets instead of having to come back to the office and then uploading it onto their computer, right? That's a two-step process. We want to make it a one-step process. We want them to have documentation right then and there instead of, you know, having to come back and look for it or have to step, you know, seven, 10 feet this way just to get a connection, right? So that's kind of where we get a lot of that from. You know, not to say that Wi-Fi is not going to be used at all in a refinery because Wi-Fi is still very ubiquitous. A lot of devices use Wi-Fi, right? But, you know, in terms of efficiency, private networks offers another opportunity to look at that connectivity problem in a different way. Varun, just another question around this. So I understand, I don't know totally about this, but there's classification of mobile equipment you can use in a refinery, et cetera. How does that impact you? And then, again, I'm just trying to make sure the education of the listener, including myself, by the way, is understanding that. Does that impact Ericsson at all? It does. It does. And we are actively looking at that. We are actively looking at potential solutions to be able to place what the industry, I guess, calls intrinsically safe or has hazardous location approved equipment, right? So like your class one, div two, class one, div one, 
type equipment that needs to be approved. And so what we found is that when you look in a refinery setting, the entire refinery is not usually, the requirement is not across the entire refinery, right? It's usually in pockets of places, like where you have like your processing units and some of the other places where maybe where you have this tank storage, where that hazardous location certifications need to happen, right? And so what we'll typically do is we'll try to go with an external party to go get enclosures that we can place our radios into and then be able to place that into those, you know, to help the refinery owner and place those in those locations. And then the rest of the refinery, we would just go with our conventional equipment, right? Standard equipment. So yeah, there's there's ways around it. Jerry, isn't it funny when we, as IBM Consulting, look at some of these programs, you know, we've got different spectacles on. I think that's what we've found both quite in, really interesting, amazing talking to Viren, right, Jerry, where we would look at the business case and the process and the technology rather than actually we should be looking at with the client as well and with Ericsson, how do we set up the best network, et cetera? What does a private network need? You know, what do we need to do? Because we're both doing digital programs, right, Jerry? Yeah, I think that's right, Jason. We don't necessarily question or provoke or challenge around what's the underlying tech and are we doing the right thing for the right application and use case? And I think that needs to seed its way into our thinking a bit. Yeah. For that, I think we need to get more educated too. Like where's 5G better or what new use cases does 5G enable that 4G couldn't handle, for instance? I think that's important. And then are there sovereignty issues that private networks are better at addressing than internet and Wi-Fi? And knowing the full slate of those use cases and applicability of them, would make us, I think, all a bit smarter. And I think there might be room for us to provide better solutions to our clients and better opportunities for collaboration and a broader ecosystem play if we partner more strongly there. Absolutely. Yeah. And Jerry, you know, to your point about 5G, so the 5G use cases that we see, and right now, you know, most of the things, I'll be fully honest, right? Most of the things in oil and gas that we're doing those can be comfortably handled by 4G technologies, right? The 4G throughputs, the 4G latencies, you know, the density of connections that we talk about. But there are applications coming that will require 5G, right? So if you think of like autonomous robots, right? Like autonomous guided vehicles, you know, imagine these little bitty robots that are going across, especially offshore platforms, right? Offshore platforms, and they've got a little camera on them. They look like a little mini tank, and Mm -hmm. they're going in and taking readings of gauges, right? They've got a set defined path around that little platform to go and read each of the gauges and then come back to its base, get recharged, and do all that, right? But to control that and to make it more advanced, that will eventually require 5G type communications, right? The latency as well as the throughput for the communicate, you know, for the camera capture and all that stuff. Drones is another example, right? Because not only are you controlling the drone through 5G, you know, through that transmission technology, but you're also capturing the 4G, the 4K type camera capabilities, right? Of that camera on that drone. So drones is another one. There's also a future technologies coming, right? That many, many different companies are working on in terms of assisted reality and uh, augmented reality to be able to look at a piece of a part or a plant and understand all the different things you can do with it, right? And so that assisted reality and that throughput that they're looking at and the back and forth ability for that headset to be able to communicate and inform the user, those things are going to require 5G. Some of these things, of course, you know, the other parts of that technology need to catch up, right? But it's coming. It's definitely coming for sure. So Jay's implications there on both the data that is coming from the device, like we got Spot the Dog, right? From yep. our, what's the name of the company that's doing Boston that? Dynamics, yeah. Boston, Boston Dynamics, Dynamics that's yeah. right. We had, and there's some of those running around refineries and things. We see the demos at all the oil and gas conferences now. 
so we got that. But then you're talking about when we're going to send data out to the customer or to the worker as well, like to say, build that augmented reality screen or view. I'm looking through a camera lens at a piece of equipment. You're sending me the schematic for that entire sort of engineering design, all the flows and pressures and things that I should see. You know, you're sending me data. I'm not just sending you data. So that back and forth, I think, is one of the things you're saying. It's going to be more important for something like 5G to keep all that real time, keep it accurate. Security. Yeah. And what's interesting, Jace, is it it points us at maybe some new skills that workers have got to have in order to take advantage of and live with those skills and maybe some new ways of working that become possible too. Yeah. Uh, we think about drones and remote management. Jason, I mean, what occurs to you around if you think about it, Jerry, think about what Fred Miles said to Neil and I only last week on the last podcast, a mm. couple of podcasts ago, about he's been in, working in BUs, but he needs both language skills, but the absolute talent and upskilling of what can we do with this data? You know, it's not looking around for it now, and but it's actually getting fed to you and automated and understand what's going to happen. You know, we need to look at now, I guess, for in with the telco, if we get together and do what the industry wants us to do, we'll need totally different people, as you were talking about pre-show, was how do we get to the right younger generation coming through and upskill them and keep the technology, but also upskill some of the current people as well, correct, in terms of looking after some of this? Yeah, I have a great story around that. I mean, just take, for example, I think it's, I can't remember, is it Oculus? It might be the Oculus headset, mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I think we were at my brother's house last winter for Christmas, just after Christmas. And they were going through all their, you know, my nieces and nephews were going through their gifts. And my niece, she's probably in her early 20s. And she had this Oculus headset. And I believe it's like one of these little virtual reality type gaming headsets, right? And for the life of me, I'm like, you know, I would never want to purchase an Oculus headset for myself, right? I'm in my, you know, for your listeners out there, I'm probably... I'm over 40. I'm probably under 55, right? So I'm probably somewhere in the middle age you know, <laughs> category. Younger than Jerry. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I would have never uh, thought of going, hey, but I tried it out and it was pretty cool, right? But I'm imagining like you go to a current worker, you know, and let's say that they are a little older, right? And you give them this virtual reality headset. So there is an opportunity for them to learn these new technologies. Or like we talked about earlier, right? You have a guy that's constantly going up and doing manual inspections on storage tanks or on silos, you know, look for certain things. And now you give him the ability to be able to work with a drone pilot, you know, and to look through the lens of a camera on a drone all of a sudden, you know, that changes his perspective on things, right? In some ways, it's like, hey, look, I don't have to actually go up and climb that tower. And I'm able to maybe do three inspections, whereas before... I was only able to do one, right? And that changes his perspective too. And it gives him more longevity in that role, right? Yeah. If there's physical requirements for climbing high ladders or needing certain strength, I think you're removing that potentially and also making it safer, right? You can have less accidents. That hits a number of keys for companies these days. I think that's super important. And then overcoming maybe some reluctance to use that tech, like you were saying, you might not want virtual reality for yourself, but if you put that on someone who's got to go out and inspect a refinery and you can walk it just by walking around a room with an Oculus on and actually kind of touring the site that way, can we get people comfortable with that, that haven't grown up with that technology? I think there's a whole skill reskilling agenda that's going to be occurring. And, you know, we could talk to some of our colleagues at the Super Majors, Jason, who, who are doing this today. Wait, there's a the name I met down at the next TechNext conference in, in Louisiana that works yeah. for Exxon that would be interested in understanding. I'd like to hear from her perspective on how the kind of skills migration is going. Can you 
get some folks who've only done physical inspections to do them remotely and be comfortable with it. Can we see tech as a helper, you know, assisted AI, AI assist, as opposed to, you know, AI or drones doing things for you? That seems like a bridge that has to be walked over. Agree. Hey, Viren, just another question as well on the resources. How are you growing your next generation of Eric's and Viren's, if you like, given that you're not, you know, 21, 22 like Jerry and I? <laughs> but I mean, joking apart, where are you finding them from and how are you enticing them? Because that's also interesting. Energy workforce for tomorrow. If we don't find the next Jerry, Jason's Viren, then we're back into a how do we then transform as an industry? And I see Eric's and IBM as part of the industry. This is our jobs, Viren. Right. Yeah, what I see, I mean, of course, you go to colleges and of course, you know, one thing I've seen, especially after the pandemic is definitely a a shift in the way the company recruits those younger workers, right? And it's the same stuff that you, you know, that we've probably heard in other places as well, right? Is that worker flexibility, right? You know, being able to have leeway of where you're working from and worker schedules you know, being able to do more collaborations with other workers, right? You know, the old days where you're in a cubicle, you're working by yourself, that's not appealing to a lot of the younger workers anymore, right? To that effect, the other thing I see also, I attend a lot of oil and gas conferences. The one thing I do see a lot of focus on, not just in oil and gas, but also within the younger workforce is around data sciences, you know, statistics, artificial intelligence, machine learning. And I think the oil and gas industry and this younger workforce have a great potential of, you know, obviously having that intersection point between the two of those, right? There's a huge amount of focus right now, I think not just in colleges, but all across the board. I even had a colleague at Ericsson that I was working with in my previous role And he was going back to get his MBA or his uh, master's of science in data analytics, right? And he's a sales guy, you know, kind of like me, he's a sales guy. And I'm like, you know, I was just thinking about that. I was like, why would you need a degree in data analytics? But there's something that intrigues the current generation. And obviously, when I go to these conferences, there's so much around artificial intelligence, machine learning, predictive analysis, being able to take a lot of data in, right? By the way, IBM, I know, is a huge part of that, right? You guys are a huge part of that analytics and the AI ML piece of that, right? And so there's definitely a big intersection there, I think, between that younger workforce and oil and gas, right? The only thing we say is, of course, you know, the way I look at digitalization is I look at it as a big chain, right? Yep. If you imagine a complete chain that's in a circle, like a bike chain, right? And each of that piece of that chain is made up of little links, right? And the way I see it is that Ericsson is a certain small portion of those links, right? And we provide the connectivity, right? And then AI and ML is another part of that connectivity. And IBM could be you know, part of that, right? And then you got data storage technologies, right? That are going to handle all these massive amounts of equipment, right? And that could be another piece of the chain. And then edge compute could be another piece of that chain, right? And all together and through all these different pieces, we complete that end use case, right? Or that end to end use case, right? But if you take any one of those links out, you break the chain, right? You completely break that chain. And so that chain doesn't work anymore, right? One thing I always remind people is, of course, you know, connectivity is still the vast amounts of information that we're all hoping to collect and that we're going to be able to make useful and make useful predictions on. It still relies on that connectivity layer to be able to bring in those data and from the sensors and from all the different pieces of equipment, right? And so that's where our role kind of comes in. It reminds me as well, some of the conversations that Jerry and I have been having on these podcasts, Jerry, we always talked about we have to entice the next gen with some great stories 
we've always looked at from an IBM consult and the stories like being involved in a, when we're getting involved in how do we change the world with some of the digital projects? Verin, you've just opened my eyes up. They said we should both Ericsson and IBM should be using that because it'd be a great story. Some of the projects we've got going would be great to show this. And then we will then grab the next Verin, Jason and Jerry's, not for going to FS or going to insurance or distribution, but bring them into oil and gas. Agreed. I think you don't have to necessarily go work for a super major or a midstream company or something else to work in oil and gas. You can work for a company like IBM or Ericsson or other partners in the ecosystem and drive solutions into the ecosystem, into the energy ecosystem and find a lot of value and impact. And so veering to that end, what kind of skills are you looking for in the folks that you're bringing into the vertical that you manage inside Ericsson? You know, for our listeners, if somebody wanted to work with a company like Ericsson, but still touch the energy industry, how do they find their way into a role at Ericsson, for instance? Like, what is your energy workforce tomorrow demand? That's a great question. So we're in oil and gas and we're in other verticals, uh, especially heavy industry verticals like manufacturing, mining, ports, airports. Mm-hmm. And so the things that we're looking for, of course, is definitely folks from the industry, right? From the oil and gas industry, right? That's one for sure where we can say, hey, you know, bring in those experiences that you guys have from the field. And then we will marry those with our telecom experience and we will create these more concrete solutions that we can then, of course, take to our customers. But, you know, from a basic standpoint, it's always that yearning to learn about technologies, about not being afraid of being introduced to new technologies and in some cases getting into the weeds and learning how it works, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think at, at a minimum, all of us to some degree have to have that, right? We have to have that yearning to want to learn, you know, to get our hands dirty, right? And, you know, more than the knowledge side of it, I think that's probably the most important skill set, right, that you can have is a desire to learn. But it's one of these things I've, I've seen people come from so many different backgrounds and do very, very well in various roles at Ericsson. So I don't think it's that you have to have a telecom type background or you have to understand telecom. I think you can bring whatever it is you have, as long as you're not afraid of telecom, because at the end of the day, you're working <laughs> for a telecom company. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's just that yearning to learn. Absolutely. We always see it, Jace. There's redundancies. There's, I don't know if layoffs is the right term, but yep. there are folks who come in and leave oil and gas and they may feel like they don't have a home. And so it's great to know that there's a lateral move that could be made into an adjacent totally industry agree. as a subject matter expert or an engineer or somewhat practical field experience that makes your solutions more real. I know that we certainly value that kind of experience, Absolutely. Jason. And I think the other thing I've picked out this one, Jerry, is so the relationship between Ericsson, between Ver and you and I, with Jerry and our team looking at it is, Jerry said it about 10, 15 minutes ago, there's definitely value in us being a little bit more educated about this sort of area, understanding and be a bit more, why aren't we going back in when we start looking at digital, whether it's an LNG plant, where it's a refinery, whether it's an office, et cetera, where they're looking at 4G or 5G private network, and we're looking at some digital programs. Why aren't we coming together and sort of looking at it? You know, for me, that was definite. Yeah, absolutely. And the key thing there is that if, like we talked about, right, like you have all these different aspects of your digitalization story and they're all moving forward. The last thing you want to do is have that connectivity layer be your bottleneck. At the end of the day, that's what it's about. 
Yeah. Don't let that connectivity layer be your bottleneck, right? If you can unleash or you can unlock that bottleneck and bring it back up to par with the rest of your digitalization story, all of a sudden that entire digitalization story is going to reap the rewards that you expect it to, right? That's what it comes down to. So Jerry, in summary, I think what have I learned personally? 4G, 5G, LTE, what are they? What Ericsson do in oil and gas? I think we passed the test. I hope we have. We'll, we'll let Vernon have a view. <laughs> you did, you did. <laughs> what was your view, Jerry? Or any, any last comments? Yeah, I think we learned a little bit more about the pros and cons of Wi-Fi versus cellular Good at, point. say, a refinery. One thing I was hoping to hear, Viren, and maybe you've got a quick one on it, is uh, data sovereignty. Is there anything oh, yeah. around data sovereignty? Because that becomes an issue for our kind of isolated sites or countries like, well, certain countries that have significant restrictions on data movement and all that. Is there a data sovereignty play yeah, here? Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a great point to bring up. So one thing that private networks does allow you to do is that when you implement a private network, what we've always said is that it sits behind the company's firewall. So it sits inside of your data center, your IT world, right? It's completely locked down by whatever you want to in terms of the firewalls and the guards that you want to put in place. So nothing from the external world can hit it, right? So yes, from that standpoint, some of these oil and gas companies have to abide by what you know, whatever country that they're a part of. They probably have their own special rules. Even here in the U.S., obviously, you know, we have some infrastructure guidance, being that oil and gas is part of critical infrastructure. Some of these companies do come to us and say, "Hey, you know, we can't have our data leave our premises." So private cellular networks allows you to do that, right? It'll never leave your premises. All the data will stay local. It's under your control. That's one of the advantages on private cellular networks. We need to be talking about OSDU for an, about uh, no, where Jerry's going because we have an OSDU solution with SLB and it's really around data sovereignty in terms of where you know people can't take data off country, et cetera. And so we've got a solution for the subsurface data, which that would be really interesting to, again, just something I've learned from this is we should mm. be looking at from a telco angle and increasing this sort of width. Yeah. So thank you. Any last comments, Varun? Any views? Enjoy it. Are you no, going to come I, back? <laughs> hey, if you guys will have me, I'll absolutely come back. <laughs> hey, did think, I pass Jerry? y'all's test? Did I? Did yeah, I well, I'm just going to ask him. Jerry, did Varun pass his test, Jerry? Yeah, I was impressed. Yeah, I, I think he passed it with flying colors, you know, very eloquent and knows his stuff very well. I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to go out to our clients together and tell <laughs> some stories and have some fun. So it's good. Excellent. Varun, thank you very much. Would you come back on? I think we would be good to have more Ericsson and what you and I discussed with Jerry is can we get more elements of Ericsson on here and understand it and go. I think this is a great podcast because we've covered, again, for me personally, the 4G, LTE, 5G, et cetera. I'll be honest, Virin, you've just opened my eyes and answered some questions I didn't know. So thank you. No, and probably that will get to the listeners. I think we should build on this and do another one, Virin, if you're happy to do it. Bring Absolutely. Yep. Let's do it. Cool. So guys, there we go. Thank you very much for listening. Tune in again. As Jerry and I have always said, with Viren's sponsorship as well, thank you, Viren, is we will adapt, adopt, and improve this podcast as we go along. We just started in October. We've got some good people, amount of people listening. We do need some feedback. So, yeah, let's go on from there. But thank you very much. So, Jerry, Viren, thank you very much for joining. And see you thank guys you, next Viren. time. Thanks, thank Jason. Have Thanks, a great day. Cheers, guys. Join us again next week on the Energy Workforce of Tomorrow podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.